Section 75 of The United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in August 2020. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 75. The Boston Tea Party. 1773 by john fiske the duty on tea had been retained simply as a matter of principle it did not bring three hundred pounds a year into the british exchequer but the king thought this a favourable time for asserting the obnoxious principle which the tax involved thus as in mrs gamp's case a teapot became the cause or occasion of a division between friends the measures now taken by the government brought matters at once to a crisis. None of the colonies would take tea on its terms. Lord Hillsborough had lately been superseded as Colonel Secretary by Lord Dartmouth, an amiable man like the Prime Minister, but like him, wholly under the influence of the King. Lord Dartmouth's appointment was made the occasion of introducing a series of new measures the affairs of the east india company were in a bad condition and it was thought that the trouble was partly due to the loss of the american trade in tea the americans would not buy tea shipped from england but they smuggled it freely from holland and the smuggling could not be stopped by mere force the best way to obviate the difficulty it was thought would be to make english tea cheaper in america than foreign tea while still retaining the duty of threepence on a pound. If this could be achieved, it was supposed that the Americans would be sure to buy English tea by reason of its cheapness, and would thus be ensnared into admitting the principle involved in the duty. This ingenious scheme shows how unable the king and his ministers were to imagine that the Americans could take a higher view of the matter than that of pounds, shillings, and pence in order to enable the east india company to sell its tea cheap in america a drawback was allowed of all the duties which such tea had been wont to pay on entering england on its way from china in this way the americans would now find it actually cheaper to buy the english tea with the duty on it than to smuggle their tea from holland to this scheme lord north said it was of no use for any one to offer objections for the king would have it so. The king meant to try the question with America. In accordance with this policy, several ships loaded with tea set sail in the autumn of 1773 for the four principal ports, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston. Agents or consignees of the East India Company were appointed by letter to receive the tea in these four towns. As soon as the details of the scheme were known in America, the whole country was in a blaze, from Maine to Georgia. Nevertheless, only legal measures of resistance were contemplated. In Philadelphia, a great meeting was held in October at the State House, and it was voted that whosoever should lend countenance to the receiving or unloading of the tea would be regarded as an enemy to his country. The consignees were then requested to resign their commissions and did so. In New York and Charleston, also, the consignees threw up their commissions. In Boston, a similar demand was made, but the consignees doggedly refused to resign, 
and thus the eyes of the whole country were directed toward Boston as the battlefield on which the great issue was to be tried. During the month of November many town meetings were held in Faneuil Hall. On the 17th, authentic intelligence was brought that the tea-ships would soon arrive. The next day a committee, headed by Samuel Adams, waited upon the consignees and again asked them to resign. Upon their refusal, the town meeting instantly dissolved itself, without a word of comment or debate, and at this ominous silence the consignees and the governor were filled with a vague sense of alarm, as if some storm were brewing whereof none could foresee the results. All felt that the decision now rested with the committees of correspondence. Four days afterward the committees of Cambridge, Brooklyn, Roxbury, and Dorchester met the Boston Committee at Faneuil Hall, and it was unanimously resolved that on no account should the tea be landed. The five towns also sent a letter to all the other towns in the colony, saying, Brethren, we are reduced to this dilemma, either to sit down quiet under this and every other burden that our enemies shall see fit to lay upon us, or to rise up and resist this and every plan laid for our destruction, as becomes wise freemen. In this extremity we earnestly request your advice. There was nothing weak or doubtful in the response. From Petersham and Lennox, perched on their lofty hilltops, from the valleys of the Connecticut and the Merrimack, from Chatham on the bleak peninsula of Cape Cod, there came but one message, to give up life and all that makes life dear, rather than submit like slaves to this great wrong. Similar words of encouragement came from other colonies. In Philadelphia, at the news of the bold stand Massachusetts was about to take, the church bells were rung, and there was general rejoicing about the streets. A letter from the men of Philadelphia to the men of Boston said, Our only fear is lest you may shrink. May God give you virtue enough to save the liberties of your country. On Sunday the 28th, the Dartmouth, first of the tea ships, arrived in the harbour. The urgency of the business in hand overcame the Sabbatarian scruples of the people. The committee of correspondence met at once, and obtained from Francis Roach, the owner of the vessel, a promise that the ship should not be entered before Tuesday. Samuel Adams then invited the committees of the five towns, to which Charleston was now added, to hold a mass meeting the next morning at Faneuil Hall. More than five thousand people assembled, but as the cradle of liberty could not hold so many, the meeting was adjourned to the Old South Meeting House. It was voted, without a single dissenting voice, that the tea should be sent back to England in the ship which had brought it. Roch was forbidden to enter the ship at the Custom House, and Captain Hall, the ship's master, was notified that it was at his peril if he suffered any of the tea brought by him to be landed. A night watch of twenty-five citizens was set to guard the vessel, and so the meeting adjourned till next day, when it was understood that the consignees would be ready to make some proposals in the matter. Next day the message was brought from the consignees that it was out of their power to send back the tea, but if it should be landed they declared themselves willing to store it, and not expose any of it for sale until word could be had from England. Before action could be taken upon this message, 
the sheriff of suffolk county entered the church and read a proclamation from the governor warning the people to disperse and surcease all further unlawful proceedings at their utmost peril a storm of hisses was the only reply and the business of the meeting went on the proposal of the consignees was rejected and roch and hall being present were made to promise that the tea should go back to england in the dartmouth without being landed or paying duty resolutions were then passed forbidding all owners or masters of ships to bring any tea from great britain to any part of massachusetts so long as the act imposing a duty on it remained unrepealed whoever should disregard this injunction would be treated as an enemy to his country his ships would be prevented from landing by force if necessary and his tea would be sent back to the place whence it came it was further voted that the citizens of boston and the other towns here assembled would see that these resolutions were carried into effect at the risk of their lives and property notice of these resolutions was sent to the owners of the other ships now daily expected and to crown all a committee of which adams was chairman was appointed to send a printed copy of these proceedings to new york and philadelphia to every seaport in massachusetts and to the british government two or three days after this meeting the other two ships arrived and under orders from the committee of correspondence were anchored by the side of the dartmouth at griffin's wharf near the foot of pearl street a military watch was kept at the wharf day and night sentinels were placed in the church belfries chosen post-riders with horses saddled and bridled were ready to alarm the neighboring towns beacon fires were piled all ready for lighting up every hilltop and any attempt to land the tea forcibly would have been the signal for an instant uprising throughout at least four counties now in accordance with the laws providing for the entry and clearance of shipping at custom-houses it was necessary that every ship should land its cargo within twenty days from its arrival in case this was not done the revenue officers were authorized to seize the ship and land its cargo themselves in the case of the dartmouth the captain had promised to take her back to england without unloading but still before she could legally start she must obtain a clearance from the collector of customs or in default of this a pass from the governor at sunrise of friday the seventeenth of december the twenty days would have expired on saturday the eleventh roch was summoned before the committee of correspondence and samuel adams asked him why he had not kept his promise and started his ship off for england he sought to excuse himself on the ground that he had not the power to do so whereupon he was told that he must apply to the collector for a clearance hearing of these things the governor gave strict orders at the castle to fire upon any vessel trying to get out to sea without a proper permit and two ships from montagu's fleet which had been laid up for the winter were stationed at the entrance of the harbour to make sure against the dartmouth's going out tuesday came and roch having done nothing was summoned before the town meeting and peremptorily ordered to apply for a clearance samuel adams and nine other gentlemen accompanied him to the custom-house to witness the proceedings but the collector refused to give an answer until the next day 
the meeting then adjourned till thursday the last of the twenty days on wednesday morning roch was again escorted to the custom-house and the collector refused to give a clearance until the tea should first be landed on the morning of thursday december sixteenth the assembly which was gathered in the old south meeting-house and in the streets about it numbered more than seven thousand people it was to be one of the most momentous days in the history of the world the clearance having been refused nothing now remained but to order roch to request a pass for his ship from the governor but the wary hutchinson well knowing what was about to be required of him had gone out to his country house at milton so as to foil the proceedings by his absence but the meeting was not so to be trifled with roch was enjoined on his peril to repair to the governor at milton and ask for his pass and while he was gone the meeting considered what was to be done in case of a refusal without a pass it would be impossible for the ship to clear the harbour under the guns of the castle and by sunrise next morning the revenue officers would be empowered to seize the ship and save by a violent assault upon them it would be impossible to prevent the landing of the tea who knows said john Rowe, how tea will mingle with salt water and great applause followed the suggestion yet the plan which was to serve as a last resort had unquestionably been adopted in secret committee long before this it appears to have been worked out in detail in a little back room at the office of the boston gazette and there is no doubt that samuel adams with some others of the popular leaders had a share in devising it but among the thousands present at the town meeting it is probable that very few knew just what it was designed to do at five in the afternoon it was unanimously voted that come what would the tea should not be landed it had now grown dark and the church was dimly lighted with candles determined not to act until the last legal method of relief should have been tried and found wanting the great assembly was still waiting quietly in and about the church when an hour after nightfall roch returned from milton with the governor's refusal then amid profound stillness samuel adams arose and said quietly but distinctly this meeting can do nothing more to save the country it was the declaration of war the law had shown itself unequal to the occasion and nothing now remained but a direct appeal to force scarcely had the watchword left his mouth when a war-whoop answered from outside the door and fifty men in the guise of mohawk indians passed quickly by the entrance and hastened to griffin's wharf before the nine o'clock bell rang the three hundred and forty-two chests of tea laden upon the three ships had been cut open and their contents emptied into the sea not a person was harmed no other property was injured and the vast crowd looking upon the scene from the wharf in the clear frosty moonlight was so still that the click of the hatchets could be distinctly heard next morning the salted tea as driven by wind and wave lay in long rows on dorchester beach while paul revere booted and spurred was riding post haste to philadelphia with the glorious news that boston had at last thrown down the gauntlet for the king of england to pick up this heroic action of boston was greeted with public rejoicing throughout all the thirteen colonies 
and the other principal seaports were not slow to follow the example a ship laden with two hundred and fifty-seven chests of tea had arrived at charleston on the second of december but the consignees had resigned and after twenty days the ship's cargo was seized and landed and so as there was no one to receive it or pay the duty it was thrown into a damp cellar where it spoiled in philadelphia on the twenty fifth a ship arrived with tea but a meeting of five thousand men forced the consignees to resign and the captain straightway set sail for england the ship having been stopped before it had come within the jurisdiction of the custom-house in massachusetts the exultation knew no bounds this said john adams is the most magnificent movement of all there is a dignity a majesty a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that i greatly admire indeed often as it has been cited and described the boston tea party was an event so great that even american historians have generally failed to do it justice this supreme assertion by a new england town meeting of the most fundamental principle of political freedom has been curiously misunderstood by british writers of whatever party the most recent tory historian mr lecky speaks of the tea riot at boston and characterizes it as an outrage the most recent liberal historian mr green alludes to it as a trivial riot such expressions betray most profound misapprehension alike of the significance of this noble scene and of the political conditions in which it originated there is no difficulty in defining a riot the pages of history teem with accounts of popular tumults wherein passion breaks loose and wreaks its full purpose unguided and unrestrained by reason no definition could be further from describing the colossal event which occurred in boston on the sixteenth of december seventeen seventy three here passion was guided and curbed by sound reason at every step down to the last moment in the dim candlelight of the old church where the noble puritan statesman quietly told his hearers that the moment for using force had at last and through no fault of theirs arrived they had reached a point where the written law had failed them and in their effort to defend the eternal principles of natural justice they were now most reluctantly compelled to fall back upon the paramount law of self-preservation it was the one supreme moment in a controversy supremely important to mankind and in which the common sense of the world has since acknowledged that they were wholly in the right it was the one moment of all that troubled time in which no compromise was possible had the tea been landed says the contemporary historian william gordon the union of the colonies in opposing the ministerial scheme would have been dissolved and it would have been extremely difficult ever after to have restored it in view of the stupendous issues at stake the patience of the men of boston was far more remarkable than their boldness for the quiet sublimity of reasonable but dauntless moral purpose the heroic annals of greece and rome can show us no greater scene than that which the old south meeting-house witnessed on the day when the tea was destroyed end of section seventy five